I'm confident no matter when this episode comes out, I don't think you're going to have heard about the story. And Chelsea, I'm pretty sure you haven't heard about this at all. It's an article out of Jacobin, a great left-leaning news source. It doesn't matter which way you lean for this particular article. But it's not getting widely reported anywhere. I thought it was important to get it across because just it's not being reported everywhere. So I technically deem it fringe topic, even though it really should not be. This was published on March 25th, 2022. It is titled, We Have New Evidence of Saudi Involvement in 9-11 and Barely Anyone Cares by Branko Marketic. What? Okay. There's a lot going on in the world right now, so it's not surprising some news slips through the cracks. Still, it's amazing that explosive new information about an allied government's complicity in one of the worst attacks on U.S. soil in history has simply come and gone. Last week, the FBI quietly declassified a 510-page report it produced in 2017 about the 9-11 terrorist attack 20 years ago. The disclosure is in accordance with President Joe Biden's September 2021 executive order declassifying long-hidden government files about the attack, which many hoped would reveal what exactly U.S. investigators knew about Saudi Arabian government's possible involvement. What? And they weren't let down. These most recent revelations revolve around Omar al-Bayoumi, a Saudi national working in San Diego for a Saudi government-owned aviation company he never actually turned up to. Al-Bayoumi had long been the subject of suspicion, both because of his ties to extremist clerics and due to the strange coincidences that surrounded him from the job he never worked to the fact that he just happened to meet two of the future hijackers in a restaurant by chance. Before finding them an apartment in San Diego, co-signing their lease, acting as their guarantor, paying their first month's rent, and plugging them into the local Saudi community. Despite all of this, and even though FBI agents had reason to believe he was a Saudi spy, something only revealed in 2016 upon declassification of 28 pages of the 9-11 Commission report that former President George W. Bush had ordered be kept secret. U.S. authorities exonerated him. The report ultimately concluded there was no credible evidence that al-Bayoumi knowingly aided extremist groups, while the Bureau decided in 2004 that he had no advanced knowledge of the terrorist attack, nor that the two hijackers-to-be were members of al-Qaeda. This latest release makes those claims a lot less tenable. According to the FBI communique dated to June 2017 from the late 1990s to September 11, 2001, al-Bayoumi was paid a monthly stipend as a co of the Saudi General Intelligence Presidency, GIP, the country's principal spy agency. The document notes that while his involvement with Saudi intelligence wasn't confirmed at the time of 9-11 Commission report, the Bureau has now confirmed it. In a 2017 separate document, Bureau officials judge that there is a 50-50 chance al-Bayoumi had advanced knowledge that 9-11 attacks were to occur. Upon being told about the revelation, the 9-11 Commission chair, former New Jersey Governor Tom Keene, said that if that's true, I'd be upset by it, and that the FBI said it wasn't withholding anything and we believed them. More than that, the report directly implicates a member of the Saudi royal family and government. Al-Bayoumi's monthly stipend was paid via then ambassador to the United States, Prince Bandar bin Sultan Al Saud. It states any information Al-Bayoumi collected on persons of interest in the Saudi community in Los Angeles and San Diego and other issues which met certain GIP intelligence requirements were forwarded to Bandar 
Bandar, who would then forward items of interest to the GIP for further investigations, vetting, or follow-up. It is long-winded, but it is going to pay off pretty soon, I swear. It's already paying off. Okay. This disclosure is particularly explosive because Bin Sultan was not just a member of the House of Sao, but was close family friends with President Bush to the point that he was nicknamed Bandar Bush. I was literally holding on to it to ask why the fuck wouldn't he say anything? Close friends with Bush's father for more than two decades. A quote from uh, 1992, I feel like one of your family. He later donated $1 million to the elder President Bush's presidential library. This friendship extended to the younger Bush, whose father advised him to consult Bin Sultan as he prepared to launch his presidential campaign. So close was their relationship that Bin Sultan was one of the first people Bush told when he decided to invade Iraq. In a markedly weird episode, the two met at the White House two days after September 11th attack and smoked cigars on the Truman balcony, mere hours before charter planes in violation of the nationwide grounding of aircrafts picked up 160 royals, Bin Laden family members, and other prominent Saudis and flew them out of the country. So let's recap what these new documents tell us. They tell us that one of the men who helped two of the September 11th hijackers settle into the United States as they prepared to carry out their attacks was in fact a spy for the Saudi government, a government long accused of supporting and financing fundamentalist extremists and the country where the vast majority of the hijackers came from. That spy was paid by and reported directly to the longtime Saudi ambassador to the United States, a close and long-standing family friend of the U.S. president. This should realistically prompt many questions like if al-Bayoumi had advanced knowledge of the attack did Bandar bin Sultan know too? Did the latter raise the alarm with anyone in the United States? Like his close friends with the president? Was bin Sultan aware of al-Bayoumi's existence the hijackers? Did Bush's relationship with bin Sultan cloud his judgment and explain his indifferent response to the intelligence warnings that came to his desk? What did the two talk about on September 13th and why has the Saudi government faced absolutely no accountability over the years? That might happen in a media ecosystem that doesn't have the attention span of a fruit fly. In the world we live in, the story has been covered by NorthJersey.com and Democracy Now! Oh my god. The September 11th attack was a profoundly traumatic event that has irrevocably shaped US foreign policy and domestic politics for the entirety of this century, often in disastrous ways for both the world and average Americans. Yet when new information implicating the Allied government in this execution comes to light, hardly anyone seems to care. I don't think you need to respond, but I thought that had to be shared. I don't even know how to respond. There is so much to unpack with that. That should have been on my last week's opener episode where I only had headlines, except that that needs to be a whole thing, not just a headline. Can you imagine if I just read the headline of that and <laughs> <Yeah>. moved on? <laughs> What? I don't even know how to follow this as an opener. Yeah, I, I think it's good to just move on with the episode because that's how it's going to go. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. Friendly reminder that the fifth word spoken in every episode can be combined with the other fifth words to construct directions to baking the perfect key lime pie. And that sometimes it's easier to allude to a mystery than to actually concoct an elaborate secret. <laughs>
We are your hosts, Taylor and Chelsea, here to guide you to the fringes. And today is Chelsea's episode, so I think I'm just going to let her take over because I am going in blind. I don't know how I'm going to follow that up. I have to say, I always look forward to what Taylor says right there because I don't know where he comes up with them and I always look forward to hearing them. And maybe that's just a behind the scenes thing, but it's true. It's our Simpsons running couch gag, if you will. It is, and it's amazing. Every week. I'm speechless. Okay. As I always have to start out with what I was thinking about doing an episode, I always have to give you the behind the scenes look. So I'm thinking about what to do my episode on and I was like, we're due for a UFO episode by now. But after I was already well into my research, I realized that that was not true because we just did a UFO episode two episodes ago. It might not come out before this one, but who knows? By that time, I had already been doing my research when it dawned on me we just did a UFO. So anyhow, keeping it Canadian on this one, Canadian is maple syrup, I'm going to regale everyone with a heritage moment, which keep making appearances on our episodes. Is this some kind of Canadian joke, sir? I mean, I know you're the instructor and everything, but we can't carry the ball. How can we get a decent shot at the... uh... One of our most well-known UFO cases, which is Shag Harbor. So, October 4th, 1967 at 11.20 p.m. Precisely, a large unknown object was witnessed crashing into the waters of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, a small fishing village which is located on Canada's east coast. But I'm not going to start with this because it's me telling the story, and I'm going to back it up a few hours prior to 11.20 p.m. on October 4th, 1967 in Shag Harbor, where there were multiple other sightings of unidentified objects. To start with, Air Canada Flight 305 from Halifax to Toronto reports something strange out the left side of the aircraft at 7.15pm on that very same day of Shake Harbor, which you have no idea what happened at Shake Harbor yet. First Officer Robert Ralph or RR for short, pointed out to, he never went by that, that's unprofessional, (laughs) pointed out to Captain Pierre Charbonneau, this is Canada to be precise, an object tracking along on a parallel course a few miles away. He described it as a brilliantly lit rectangular object with a string of smaller lights trailing behind the object. 7.19 p.m. The pilots notice a sizable silent explosion near the large object and two minutes later a second explosion that faded to a blue cloud around the object. Another report from an airline comes in. Somebody recently says that they have witnessed this. This is more recent. The other one was right at the time. Witness to the incident Ralph Lowinger, one of the pilots aboard Pan Am Flight 160, a Boeing 707 cargo aircraft that was at 33,000 feet that same night. They saw a row of flashing lights over the Gulf of Maine as they approached the coast of Nova Scotia. Another witness that same night, Daryl Dory, his sister Annette and his mother were sitting on the front porch in Mayhome Bay when they noticed a large object maneuvering above the southwestern horizon. Next day, Daryl wrote a letter to RCAF Greenwood Base Commander asking what the F... That's my words, by the way. And just to quickly add, RCAF is the Royal Canadian Air Force. Thank you. I didn't even know that. I just went with what I was reading. (laughs) He asked what the 
F was flying over the water that evening. He just says, what was it? I just added a little pizzazz. As he had never seen anything like it. That's the end of his experience. I don't know if he gets a response back. Another experience. While standing at the wheelhouse of his vessel, that's fancy talk for boat, I think. Captain Leo Howard Mercy was looking at four blips on his DECA radar that were stationary. When he looked up about 28 kilometers from the vessel's windows, he could see the four bright objects situated in a roughly rectangular formation. The entire crew of nearly 20 fishermen stood on deck and watched the objects in the northeastern sky. They're on a boat. Yes. Which um, I think we first kind of implicitly thought when you said vessel, but then confirmed when you said they were we fishermen. Did, I confirmed it for you, yes. Yeah. So they have radar. So yes. the radar is showing them something under the water. Yes. It is in the sky. But there's something above these in the sky. Y yes. <laughs> okay, I just, I think that's crazy. Yeah. I don't know about science. So I just went with the story. I didn't really question what was happening okay. because I just I just trusted what was happening and I wasn't really sure how radar works. Okay. To be honest. Um so thank you for that, but I don't have the answers. No, just, but you you've been on a boat before. You've seen like the fishing radars, right? Yes. But yeah. does that not show what's happening in the sky? No, because it's basically creating a sound underwater that bounces off these things. It's like so. It's like the whales. What the whales have. Yeah, it, it's sonar. Hmm. Well, I'd like to think in this situation, based on the information I have, that it's Cian's guy. Okay. No, I, I just find it interesting <laughs> that they they're looking out at these like blips on the uh, sonar. And they're seeing something floating above it, which implies there's something below it as well. Or yes. this thing is extending in a way that's kind of weird. Honestly, I assumed that the sonar showed both. If not just what was in the sky, but you're no, right. There's they're no this down. A boat to show you what's in the air. Yeah, you really think well. Um, I didn't think that well on it. And I'm not... I, I can't answer your questions. I didn't look much more to it. They're seeing something in the sky and on their radar. Mm -hmm. And you would think the boat radar would show the sea, but I also thought it might show the sky. So I didn't question it. And that's all <laughs> I have on that. One thing I do know about Shag Harbor is it both contains above and below water portions. Yes. Um, so this portion, I haven't gotten to Shake Harbor, Harbor. Yeah, but this is uh, sightings just, before, prior to this. I just wanted to mention that because mm -hmm. it's almost implicit with this boat sighting that you're talking about that there is both an above and below portion. Yes. It's just that we're only actually seeing the above water portion. Thank you for bringing that up, and I cannot confirm what exactly is going up, uh, going on here, other than what I'm reading. Um, you bring up a really good point, is all I'm going to say on this. Because I can't confirm what, what it is. Yes, unfortunately, we were not around in the 60s. Yeah, we were not, unfortunately. Or fortunately. No, unfortunately. Um, okay, so they see something on sonar. Not sure 
what region of the earth it's in. In uh, a, a rectangular formation in the sky. The entire crew of nearly 20 fishermen stood on deck and watched the object in the northeastern sky. You bring up such a good point, though. Mercy radioed the Rescue Coordination Center and the Harbor Master in Halifax asking for an explanation and filed a report with the Lunenburg RCMP outlining his sighting when they arrived in port. Um, newspapers, RCMP, local radio stations, basically everything you can think of was receiving reports of strange glowing objects around Halifax around 10 p.m. that night. So just to set the scene, I know I kind of set it up like we were going to initially talk about Shake Harbor, but I just wanted to set up what was happening prior to that event because I'm telling the story. So now let's jump an hour and a half later and 255 kilometers away to Shake Harbor where the initial report of, well, that's not the initial report. I just told you a bunch of reports. Well, this one's directly attached to us. Yeah. Those this other is, ones, they could be other things. These, I mean, what are the odds of all those things happening, though, so close to this one? Just in my opinion, I guess. Could be other aliens wanting to throw off the scent of aliens. It's true. They really could have. Or they could have been working together. The initial report of the Shake Harbor object was made by local resident Lori Wickens, which is a boy teenager at the time and four of his friends. Driving through Shake Harbor on Highway 3, they spotted a large object descending in the waters off the harbor. Attaining a better vantage point, Wickens and his friends saw an object floating 250 to 300 meters offshore the waters of Shake Harbor. Quotations. There were four lights in a row and they were going on and off. And quotation, in sequence, glowing orange and yellow. Quotations, one would come on, then two, three, and four. And they'd all be off for a second and come back on. And quotation. Wickens contacted the RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage from a payphone and reported he had seen a large airplane or small airliner crash into the waters off Shake Harbor. That's essentially what happens. Soon afterwards, Wickens was among a dozen or so people gathered at the water's edge, watching in amazement as a glowing orange sphere about the size of a city bus bobbed on the waves about 300 meters from shore. Wickens says the bright object appeared to be floating one half mile from the shore, leaving a trail of yellow foam that folks watched for nearly an hour before it disappeared. Folks, yes. I wonder how they knew it was like yellow foam coming off it. Like, was it just like the light coming off the UFO that was making it yellow, or was it like legitimately yellow foam that was making it? I I was wondering the same at this point. They probably just think it looks like that, but they do have a little bit of confirmation coming up. Okay. This sighting is unlike anything you really see with UFO reports. It is crazy. Three RCMP officers are on the scene within about 15 minutes of the reports from, what's his name again? Louise? Lori. We're going to have another Roland versus Ronald on our hands. They're there within about 15 minutes of the reports of something crashing into the harbor, and they are among the dozen or so other witnesses who had now gathered on the shoreline 
and before their eyes, the object with light still showing slip beneath the surface without a sound and it sinks and disappears from view. There were also reports from people of hearing a whistling sound, quotations like a bomb, then a whoosh, and finally a loud bang. And I don't know about you, but I don't usually connect a whistling sound and a bomb together, but I also have never experienced a bomb in real life, so I don't have that real life experience of what a bomb would sound like. I just... At the same time, if you're close enough to a bomb, you're going to get some tinnitus sounds, which can sound like a whistling. And I don't have any reports of tinnitus, but yeah, all my things of bombs are from TV, so... Maybe they just don't relay the whistling sound correctly. I don't know. So everyone reporting and witnessing this, like, literally thinks it's a downed aircraft. They're not thinking anything else other than airplane has gone down into Shag Harbor. And concerned for survivors, the RCMP who were there contact the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax to see about missing aircraft. A rescue mission was quickly assembled and everyone was assuming that an aircraft had gone down. And within half an hour of the crash, local fishing boats went out to the crash site in the waters of the Gulf of Maine, off Shave Harbor, to look for survivors. Before the ship arrived, volunteer searchers aboard two fishing boats soon spot like like I said the fishing boats they go out and they soon spotted a long trail of bubbling yellow foam on the calm waters but no wreckage. The people who are on the shore to answer your question are seeing this like weird yellow foam that's coming up but the fishing boats also go up and go through this foam which they're comparing it to the length of their boat and it's actually quite large that this yellow weird foam is coming out of the water. They didn't find any survivors, bodies, or debris. Just this weird foam that they actually didn't take any samples of because first of all they were assuming it was an aircraft and it wasn't important to them to grab this it was secondary to them when they're looking for like debris and stuff like that. No debris were taken either by fishermen or by the Canadian Coast Guard search and rescue cutter, which arrived about an hour later from the initial sighting with RCMP from nearby Clark's Harbor is where the Coast Guard comes in from. And the Coast Guard is basically like water police. <laughs> it was determined by the Rescue Coordination Center, also known as the RCC, the next morning that there were no no aircrafts missing, everything was accounted for, the RCC then sends a priority telex, no idea what a telex is, but they send it nonetheless, to the air desk, quotes, air quotes, direct quotes, at Air Force headquarters in Ottawa. I guess this is where all civilian and military UFO sightings are handled, and the RCC informs them of the crash and that all conventional explanations such as aircraft, flares, whatever else have you, have been dismissed. Like, they cannot find what this is that has crashed there. Therefore, this was labeled a UFO report truly an unidentified flying object 
as no one had any idea what it was. I actually think you could probably consider this a USO just because of its interactions with the water more so properly be defined as an unidentified submersible object. Absolutely. I don't know that at this time that that would have even been a thing in the lingo, but mostly because this came from the air. It was unidentified. They thought it was a plane. It was flying at first and it was a object. Truly, this is in every aspect of this word. This is what UFO was essentially created for they had no idea what this object that was initially flying was like not one single idea and that's what makes it a ufo the head of the air desk which essentially gets all these uso reports then sends another priority telex i have no idea what this telex is I, like, it might be. It's a teleprinter. So you, customers, switched network of teleprinters, similar to telephone networks, using a telegraph-grade connecting circuit for two-way text-based messages. Okay. It was a major method of sending written messages electronically between businesses in the post-World War II period. See, I could have done that, but I didn't. I just said I didn't know. It's basically the predecessor to a fax machine. I was going to say telex sounds like a 90s version of a telegram but it was the 60s yeah well it's post telegram free fax okay that makes sense thank you for that so the air desk then sends another priority telex to the navy headquarters and now we know what it is i know what it is now inserting the ufo report they recommended an underwater search be mounted the navy in turn sent another priority telex there are so many telexes being sent at this time they have a photo of a telex and it's literally like a typewriter and you would like type on it and it like sends it to the other person that you're typing oh my god that's so futuristic it also has a little telegram spool right beside it too (laughs) that's so funny okay so i was kind of on track but not really the navy is tasking fleet diving unit atlantic with carrying out the underwater search priority telexes were flying around everywhere like absolutely everywhere they're sending them to everyone about anything in come the navy divers from fleet diving unit atlantic aka f D-U-A. And for three days, they combed the seafloor of the harbor. Final report says no trace of the object was found. With that, I do want, this is my own personal wondering, if they found anything else good that didn't make it into the report, like treasure or something. It's not in the reports. I wouldn't expect treasure to make it into the reports when they're looking for a UFO or a downed aircraft or something like that. But they had to find something good, don't you think? Maybe. What's that name of the island where they're always digging for that treasure? That's exactly what I thought, and I can't remember what it's called. There is an island in Canada where they're always digging for that treasure. It's that Canada Island treasure. Oak Island. Oak Island, yeah. That's so funny, we thought it. Well, nothing about Oak Island came up. Nothing about washed up feet in a shoe came up. So they had to have found something, but uh, it wasn't that good to make it into their part. I mean, they were only looking for one thing. They're both just off Highway 3. I don't think anywhere near each other, but it's off Highway 3. It's all connected. Jake Harbor UFO is found in Government of Canada documents. We see it 
I mean, the RCMP was there. They witnessed it. There were telexes between major government agencies calling it officially a UFO because it was in the purest sense of the word. It was unidentified. There's lots and lots of government and police records making the Shake Harbor incident Canada's best documented, probably one of the world's best documented and most intriguing official UFO sighting. Since the object continues to be of unknown origin, we've never found out to this day what it is, hence why we call it the Shake Harbor UFO, updated to UAP, potentially USO, and probably one of the world's best UFO cases in which it's properly documented in government documents. And that is the end of my Canadian history Shake Harbor UFO sighting. Any questions? No, I just love the fact that one of the biggest cases in Canadian history is a USO case. I knew a little bit about Shake Harbor UFO. I specifically toned this down for reasons that we both know, but we'll leave mysterious to the audience. But it is probably one of the best documented UFO cases in the history of the world. It's in government documents being called a UFO, and we still to this day have no idea what it was. And they sent in every government agency to look into what it was, which is so cool. Pretty much no other UFO sighting has that. We have, as Canadians, we have some pretty cool UFO sightings that I don't think they're given enough credence. Is that the proper word for it? Notoriety, I think, would be a good word for it. No, notoriety is the perfect word for it. But they're so good. This one's awesome. And they have the Shake Harbor UFO Museum right at Shake Harbor. I really want to go there. There's a UFO meeting, meetup that happens there yearly. And if we go to that, we could probably expense it if we record live there. Yeah. What are we going to expense it to? I would love to. It would be so cool. They had so many big names going to it in the last couple of years, like Nick Pope went to it. And all these people who cited this and they're all still alive to talk about it. So they all go to it and it's such a cool sighting. Lori, he was a teenager in the 67 or yeah. the late 60s. So he'd only be in the 60s at the latest. Yeah, still alive. I'm disappointed there was never a heritage moment of this growing up on the commercials that we saw, like the basketball with the peach basket. It's up there with the ranks of that, right? But they did just have the Canadian Mint did have a coin in commemoration of it. And it sold out super fast of the Shake Harbor incident, which I think is super cool. An important part of Canadian history, I think. <laughs> yes, thank you for spreading Canadian history to the world, Chelsea. That's Doing your I'm part doing. for us. And our subtle takeover. <laughs> yes, yes, we need it. Yeah, that's a, it's a really cool mass sighting, I should probably add, too. Like the Falcon Lake incident, I love that story more, but Same. it's just the one guy. Yeah. Whereas this is like many different stories all coming together. It, and it's so good because... RCMP witnessed it and like I'm a little bit I'm missing all my words in my vocabulary I'm a little bit what's the word that I'm looking for differential to the RCMP right now we've talked about them in some fairly negative ways overall they still perform a service and are meant to especially keep records as a credible witness 
RCMP would be among? In this particular type of event, yes. They are yeah. indifferent to it or apathetic to it. They don't have any stake in the game. So it, it is interesting to hear their side of it. Yeah, the military was there. It's in government records. They thoroughly investigated it and still it's still unknown in their books. So I think it's both really good. And as yeah. Canadian UFO sightings, we have the cream of the crop. <laughs> and by the way, if you want to see how far we've come as a podcast, go back and I think it's our fourth episode, Close Encounters of the Second Kind, is where we talk about the Falcon Lake incident. That's Canadian history. I really wish I could say this has been a heritage moment. It has not, but it's close to it. And we just need that government funding to come through and we can call We really do. We really do. But Chelsea, thank you for sharing this heritage moment, not minute. <laughs> Legally, we can't call it that, but maybe someday. Stay tuned next week where we reveal the winning lottery numbers for this week. I have been Taylor here with Chelsea, and thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Hey.